0: From 11FS, this is FinTech Insider News, and I'm your host, Ross Gallagher. Thank you for downloading this podcast, especially you buying that sandwich. This week, we're talking Shopify launches credit card, expanding its ever-growing suite of financial services products. HSBC partners with TradeShift. Hear what our panel thinks about the potentials for embedded in the B2B space. And is it ever okay to lie on your resume? Probably not about balloons. We get into all this and much more on today's show, but first a few brief messages. So please stick with us.
1: A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, Strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customers' relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to FinTech Insider, watching Cider, Eleven FS Spotlight, Eleven FS Explores, Open Mic Night, After Dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more.
2: Long live the community.
0: Hello and welcome to episode seven hundred and sixty-eight of FinTech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, Ventures Director at Eleven FS, and I'm joined this week on FinTech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in FinTech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my Eleven FS colleague David Barton Grimley, Director of FinTech Strategy. David, as ever, great to have you. What's uh, what's been keeping you busy lately?
3: Well, Ross, I've been looking into Google Meet's new background filter features. Um, I know oh. it's not a fintech subject, but uh, this week I've been an astronaut, I've been a chicken um, and various other things. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it for kind of business or client-related meetings. I don't know. Like it just gets a bit weird there. But for internal meetings, I'm, I'm a chicken.
0: I like it. I mean, it helps to break the ice at the start of meetings. Uh, so, <laughs>
3: no, nice that you've given that a, a good
0: once-over. Um, we also have a very welcome return to FinTech Insider for Valentina Christensen, Director of Growth and Communications at Oak North Bank. Val, thanks for joining us. Not that people will necessarily need reminding, a good friend of the show, but maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and and a little bit about Oak North Bank.
4: Sure. Thanks so much for, for having me back. Um, So I've been with Oak North for about eight years now. I returned uh, last week uh, after six months of mat leave. So, um, you know, very excited to be back. Um, And Oak North, for those who may not be familiar, is a fintech focused on empowering the missing middle, uh, basically mid-sized companies that we feel have been overlooked and underserved by traditional financial services.
0: Well, Val, great to have you. Huge congratulations. And thanks for jumping in like a week after you've come (laughs) back as well. We're thrilled to have you. Um, and last but by no means least, we have a Fintech Insider debut for Shihan Silva, Head of Digital Solutions, Global Trade and Receivables Finance for HSBC. Shihan, um, welcome to the show. We'll get to your uh, exciting news in, in, in just a little while, but maybe uh, you can just give the the listeners a bit of an intro to yourself and your role at HSBC.
5: Thank you, Ross. Uh, and it's a pleasure to join you for the first time. I've been listening to your podcast uh, for for some time now and uh, really excited to be here. Uh, so as, as you said, I'm responsible for digital solutions for trade finance. And what that means is um, it includes all the digital proprietary channels like web, mobile, et cetera, that clients use, but more recently has included some of the embedded finance solutions and partnerships uh, that, that we have. Uh, so that Include situations where clients are trading on uh, marketplaces, e-commerce portals, maybe using accounting systems, um, and embedding our financing solutions on those platforms uh, for clients to access uh, finance. Uh, so, very excited to be here and uh, talk through these um, to these topics.
0: Yeah, super super interesting, Shihan. And we're excited to have you. And thanks for uh, coming on to share all of your uh, insights and experience. So with that then, let's get straight into the news. So the first story this week comes from TechCrunch with a headline, Shopify expands into credit cards as it pushes further into the fintech space. So Shopify has entered the credit card game. The commerce giant announced that it is offering Shopify Credit, a business credit card designed exclusively for its US merchants. It's powered by Stripe, issued by Celtic Bank, and accepted everywhere Visa is. The credit card is designed to evolve alongside the merchant's business, adjusting the credit limit to accommodate business growth from $1,000 to $100,000 per month at its launch. Now, to find out more about how Shopify sees their credit card offering supporting SMEs right now, we reached out to Vikram and Reddy, Shopify's head of product for financial services, for more information.
2: We heard from our merchants and entrepreneurs again and again on how complicated business credit cards can be. The application process is difficult, credit limits are small, rewards are confusing and hard to redeem, and there are lots of hidden fees. Couple that with the macroeconomic environment where access to funding and credit is really difficult for small businesses. That is why we are launching Shopify Credit a pay-in-full business credit card that has been exclusively designed for Shopify merchants and entrepreneurs. It offers four benefits. Number one, we set credit limits based on a merchant's business performance and not based on their personal credit history. The beautiful thing about this is that credit limits will grow as the merchant's business grows. Number two, we offer up to 3% cashback on categories where... Merchants spend the most on things like marketing, fulfillment, and B2B wholesale. Number three, a lot of our merchants can go from application to approval to having a virtual credit card in their wallets all within a few minutes, not days, not weeks. And number four, this is a very transparent credit card. We have no fees of any kind.
0: So Val, it seems only right to come to you on this one, um, given Oak North's uh sort of focus on that SME financing space. I guess uh some of the uh some of the pain points that you heard there are probably quite familiar.
4: Yeah, I mean I think, you know, look, there's there's a huge difference obviously between um, a business credit card and and the type of loan that Oak North offers, right, which is which is typically long term, um, you know, repayments over three to five years, revolving credit facilities, um, you know, and and we're talking about millions of pounds as opposed to you know a credit card limit of of a few hundred thousand, perhaps at the at the very highest uh, level. I think though, what's so interesting about this approach, and I think it's definitely the right approach, which is that you see so many um, fintech players you know, that that try to be all things to all people, right? They come to market with a proposition where they're offering literally anything <laughs> under the sun in an attempt to get that low-hanging fruit and just get as many customers um, as possible. Um, and that will obviously help them with, you know, future funding rounds and, and higher valuations. But what Shopify has done, which is so interesting, is sort of saying, well... We know the unique pain points of our customers because we've been working with them for this many years. And so we've designed a proposition that's specifically for them. We're not trying to go out and compete with the rest of the credit card market, um, you know, and and target people who and businesses that don't currently, um, you know, work with Shopify. What we're saying is we know that for those Shopify customers, there's a lot of pain points. And if we can help them Addressing those pain points, then they're ultimately going to be that much um, uh, that much better as a business. They'll be able to function that much better as a business, um, and then Shopify will sort of have a, a, a an indirect gain as a result of that. So it's a very very smart strategy, um, and it really is a you know a, a place where they feel they can play to win. Um, you know that it's they're not trying to gain sort of huge market share necessarily, but they do want to gain the market share amongst their customers. Um, so I think it's a very smart strategy. Obviously you know if you you look at credit cards I mean a number of those pain points were addressed there of course, there's pain points when you're applying for a a loan as well, right? The application process is going to be much longer than filling out a form online. Um, You know, you might have to, you know, have a conversation with credit committee, documentation you'll have to produce will be much more, um, you know, will be be much more of it, and it'll be much more in depth. Um, It's not based on sort of a credit score based uh, methodology. So um, they're going to be asking, you know, a lot more information in terms of the due diligence process and the, the credit process they'll have to go through. So um, as they should, because you're talking about loans of, you know, potentially millions of pounds. So I think you can't really compare them. Um, it's really about finding the right solution for your business. Um, and if your credit card is the right solution, because you need money quickly and just a, a smaller amount of, of cash, um, a loan might be a better option if, you know, you need a large larger chunk of change. You want to be able to draw down from it, um, you know, large sums from it uh, over a certain period of time and uh and perhaps you know you're in a business that's of a certain sophistication and size that now you you think you can qualify for a loan whereas before you may have only felt the credit card was your best credit option
0: yeah it's i mean it's 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 super interesting i mean i remember um speaking to rishi um quite a few years ago and him saying that the average i think time even just to get a no from a high street bank was like six months you know this this is kind of happening in minutes do you think? Because obviously, look, this is this is a big improvement on that. How do you feel about? We're starting to see more things come to market now to better service the financing needs of of smaller businesses. Do you think we're moving in the right direction? Are we starting to see some material progress?
4: Look, I think um, definitely in terms of small and micro businesses, for sure. Um, you know, and you've seen that not just in credit cards, but you see it in the uh, you know the the day to day transactional banking offerings of. of Tide and Revolut and Starling Bank and Monza Bank, you know, there's there's a, a really um, broad array of products and services that are now kind of targeting the, the the small and micro. And in some ways, those fintechs and those businesses that have, t- you know, have had individual consumers like you and me as customers, it's not so difficult to... Add a little bit to it to then make it, um, you know, uh, suitable for a small business or a micro business where you may only have, you know, one individual, uh, one director, one ultimate business owner. Um, obviously, though, once you get to that mid-sized company, which is really more where Okanoff plays, and you're talking about revenues of two million up to a hundred million uh, every year, then you know needs become much more complex, um, legal structures become much more complex, um, and that's where I think. Um, you know, there's still a huge amount of work that needs to be done. Um, you know, that just requires that um, additional level of analysis, that additional level of due diligence, um, which obviously takes time, technology, investment, um, and uh, and those are things that uh, I don't think we see enough of in the market. The sort of targeting those those mid-sized companies, but certainly, yes, I think it's great to see. Uh, more offerings for small and micro, and hopefully, in time, we'll see um, that investment going into the mid-size as well.
0: Completely agree,
4: um, um,
5: Shihan. What sort of stood out
0: for you um, when you read when you read about this uh, this story, this product?
5: I think it's very exciting because if you look at uh, a lot of the marketplaces, there is a need for these merchants to have access to some form of credit, right? So, um, the, the fact that uh, Shopify and other marketplaces are coming up with solutions attracts these merchants to that marketplace because it helps them to sell more. Uh, they have an ability to, um, you know, a, a source products and services that help these merchants produce stock goods, and ultimately, that indirectly, as well mentioned, um, allows the 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 the, uh, the Shopify to to get more. Uh, business as well. So I think uh, that, that's very exciting. Um, I think from an SME perspective, the, the trend to offer more financing products to that segment is, is is also positive, particularly from the likes of Shopify, where they have a, a potentially large uh, user base or customer base. So it could really make a tangible dent in the adoption and how many uh, merchants have access to the products. Um, and it's complementary because, you know, different entities, whether it's HSBC or the entities may do loans and there is a place for cards and for loans depending on the size of the customer, depending on the strategic nature of the goods being purchased, depending on the size of the transaction. Uh, so um, all of this fits in quite nicely to make sure that we are meeting customers' needs.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think there's something in it as well around you know the fact that this isn't necessarily based solely on credit checks; that this is based on the the performance of the business. Val,
4: yeah, I mean, I I think you know that that's that's it. It's it's based on that unique information that Shopify has on the customer, and that's so important because, as I say, you often get the experience as a small business where you go to an institution and you're sort of given a menu of items to choose from. And that's really whether you go to a neobank or, you know, one of the big five. Um, And it can be a bit overwhelming. And you may not have the sophistication internally, the structure with a CFO or a finance director to know what products are the right fit for your business. So the fact that Shopify can then say, we've seen your spending, we've seen how your business operates, and we, this would be our recommendation to you. Um, You know, you're kind of doing a lot of the handholding with them, which um, I think, you know, those small and micro businesses that are starting out will really appreciate, you know, if you're a bigger business, a mid-sized company, you probably have a, an FD, or finance director or a CFO, um, and you've probably, you know, had the same credit card for many, many uh, years, and you've probably got a credit limit that's working well for you. Potentially, you've taken out loans before. Um, so it's just a bit different, and, and you may not benefit as much from um, that kind of handholding. Um, but I think, you know, certainly for those smaller micro businesses. Um, so again, I think it's just a really smart move from Shopify. Of knowing their customer and saying, um, "We think we have a right to to win here," um, so you know, let's let's go for it.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree, and it does feel that little bit more um, friendly is the wrong word, but it does feel that more like a partnership, they're kind of working with you, helping to sort of grow your business. Um, David, what were what were what were your thoughts on this? And I think shihan mentioned in particular that sort of the notion of putting that finance at the point of need, right? I know that's something that you're particularly passionate about.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think as both uh, Sheehan and Val were saying, it's all about really understanding the data. And this is the wonderful thing about these digital marketplaces, they have the data, and therefore they can then do something with that data in a meaningful way that then builds up the, the overall value of the marketplace. But from a Shopify perspective, you've seen them getting more and more confident. And for me, this is just the latest example of the kind of products that they've been um, launching in the embedded finance space. So they started with Shopify Capital all the way back in 2016, which is a bit of a no-brainer for a a digital marketplace in some ways, right? It's um, merchant cash advance, so we know what your forward order book looks like, so we can just lend against that. And they've moved from there into lending, into more financial services features, and now into a credit card. And you can see what they're doing here, right? They're becoming more and more like a full-service financial services institution for businesses that trade online. Um, which is very interesting for their business model because they're taking it way beyond the you know, very small shops that, that use us and in fact actually maybe up into the slightly larger businesses because you, you, you know, you're getting larger and larger businesses with more of those complex needs that Val was referring to using platforms like Shopify to, to run their businesses. So I think it's a very interesting area to move into unsecured credit, unsecured lending, for a small business albeit at a very small bite size and it'll be interesting to see where that takes them i
0: totally agree one thought david and we're over on time so we need to be quick but just as you were saying that and it's great to have a one-stop shop but i guess i'm thinking about the news that we saw this week with like etsy holding back funds and really pushing sort of small um small retailers into quite difficult financial positions is there a risk for businesses In everything that you've just described, that Shopify becomes a little bit of a a single point of failure.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot of the problem for the businesses and even the consumers is you don't really understand what the bank is that sits behind this, right? And this is where some of the regulatory pressures uh, come in around how viable banking as a service actually is. So you look at it from a customer, and I actually have a a real, real case of this. So I have eBay holding money of mine in a wallet that they won't release until the person who's bought my sofa uh, is able to scan a QR code. So it's exactly the same, same kind of issue. And I don't know when that's going to happen. I haven't had any contact from her, so I don't know whether or not she's received the sofa. It's exactly the same kind of problem at scale. There's definitely a transparency issue, which over time needs to, needs to get resolved. I mean, we also just don't know how liquid these firms are, right? Like how liquid is Etsy? I'm trusting my money and my business with um, this huge funded startup-funded business. Like how viable is it? Yeah.
0: All right. Um, our next story comes from AltFi, um, with a headline HSBC launches embedded finance venture with FinTech TradeShift. So B2B FinTech TradeShift has secured thirty-five million dollars in funding from HSBC as the two jointly launch a new venture creating an embedded finance solution and financial services app. HSBC and the Danish fintech will create a range of digital solutions across both TradeShift and other platforms. This will include payment and fintech services embedded into trade, e-commerce, and marketplace experiences. So, Sheehan, obviously, great to have you here to discuss this. Um, Maybe you can just give us a little bit of the background on how this joint venture uh, came together.
5: Sure, Ross. Um, So, we've been working with uh, TradeShift for a few years now. Uh, And and if you look at banks and these fintechs in the past. For a few years, we've been uh, integrating with these fintechs and providing solutions to the larger customers. Now, TradeShift is also um, a network. It's got the larger customers, but it's also got a massive number of SMEs and smaller customers. And the opportunity is that, uh, similar to what we've been discussing before, it's about how can you embed finance to make that finance available to a larger number of smaller suppliers, um, and, and and that's how the joint venture um, idea came about to be able to offer uh, financing to these suppliers. Uh, to do this, there are three broad areas that 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 we need to focus on. One is, of course, the the users, the traffic, the suppliers, and that's where uh, it allows trade shift to focus on building that network, building that traffic, providing solutions to users to uh, increase the throughput through their platform. It allows HSBC to um, develop financial propositions. And the JV comes in the middle to have the technology to bridge the two. And to provide these financial services apps that can be embedded within TradeShift, to offer the products that or propositions that HSBC develops. So so I think that's the that that that's how it came about. Um so the JV will will, will really be the best of both worlds, the the technology from TradeShift side, the balance sheet and expertise on um on on financing products uh from HSBC um and the ability to take that to to many geographies around the world.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing insight really into both how it came together, but then I suppose the benefits both for HSBC and TradeShift and, of course, um, end users. I know um, in the in the story we said that, you know, you're looking at creating a range of, of sort of digital solutions across TradeShift, but also other platforms. Um, are you able to tell us a little bit about what sort of digital solutions are on the cards?
5: Sure. So, so TradeShift's core products are uh, AP automation. Uh, in effect, you know, things like e-invoicing, purchase orders, this kind of thing, um, and marketplace solutions where they provide marketplace solutions to, um, you know, marketplace operators, for instance. What that means is that users on TradeShift um, or customers on TradeShift, whether that's the big buyers or the large number of small suppliers, there's, there's a lot of invoices, purchase orders, trade traffic that is moving between these customers. Now, these invoices purchase orders details of transactions can lead to different opportunities in terms of the financing propositions that can be offered one is there's an invoice it's got to be paid so there could be payment products uh, associated with that things like wallets or simple payments Uh, secondly there could be financing products so there is an invoice it's got to be paid on a particular date or it is paid in at a future point and that money needs to be advanced now. Um, and, and, and then it becomes whether it's uh, receivables or payables financing uh, where uh, cash flow needs are delivered that way. Um, thirdly, there's also an opportunity for card products. So similar to how uh, we just spoke about Shopify, there is a transaction. It has been a trade transaction where someone has purchased something from someone else. Uh, there is an opportunity to use a card. And of course, then finally, there is also some element of foreign exchange that could be involved. So it, it's it's kind of a broad cross-section of products, I would say, across payments, across foreign exchange, across financing, uh, that really brings everything together to make sure that, that transaction of buying and selling um, can be fulfilled from the from the financing solutions that are needed
0: yeah and and really interesting what you're saying i mean lots of lots of different use cases but i think also lots of different pain points within each of those use cases that you could really help to solve for um you mentioned in your previous answer about different geographies i guess what what markets do you see as being um sort of key to this
5: so both trade shift and HSBC have a very wide footprint. Um, you know, we, we have a commercial banking basis in, in uh, over 50 countries. And that really allows us to take this uh, far wider than than um, one or two countries. Uh, so I would say, Ross, instead of saying which countries we are starting with, there are a few parameters that will help us decide where to go. Um, and, and those could are ah, based on where the clients and the need is so. Whilst um, you know embedded finance and accessing finance via platforms is um, you know common in several markets, some markets are more advanced than others. So, client need, client traffic—that's the first uh, angle. There, the the second is uh, where the regulation, governance, digital solutions, digital embedded finance is is, is positive. and and uh, we see more markets that that are open to this we see more markets that have passed uh, regulations uh, around uh, digital invoicing for instance um, so that that clearly is, is some countries mandate that invoicing should be done digitally only so so then clearly those markets become a priority because there will be more more uh, digital invoicing traffic to to finance and then finally where both from a trade shift perspective and from an HSBC perspective where capability and investment exist for us to be able to develop products. Um, so, you know, there's uh, you know, a, a range of markets that meet these, these parameters, I would say across Asia, Europe and the Americas, where um, we would be looking to um, deploy this capability.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Shean, look, it's great to have you on to sort of give us that peek behind the curtain, um, into the, the sort of background and how this all came together. So, so thank you so much for that. Um, David, you know, we mentioned some of those, uh, those pain points, I suppose, particularly in that sort of B2B world. It feels like there's a real role potentially for embedded to start to solve for some of those.
3: Yeah. And I feel like the entire fintech industry has been excited about and talking about the potential for embedded finance in, in the trade finance um, and supply chain area for a very long time now. And I think it's wonderful to see this example. and And I hope maybe it is a, a bit of a shining light for other banks and for other use cases to get into this. I wonder whether there's a very interesting moment in time that's happening right now, right? Like, Businesses that exist in very, very complicated supply chains always need capital. I mean, that's, that's, been the, that's been the case from day one. But what we have at the moment with COVID, with the war in Ukraine, with the um, supply side crunches that we've been having, a real issue actually for businesses that exist inside very, very complex supply chains and trade shift um, have an index themselves um, that they released actually their, their Q1 2023 index showing that economic slowdown has left firms sitting on record inventory, um, which means that the need for cash is way more pressing I think than it's than it's ever been. So the business case for a very large bank like HSBC in some cases becomes a little bit more academic. It becomes much clearer. You know, we can make an investment, and we can actually make a return on that investment in a way that perhaps we couldn't before, because the the need is more pressing. And an organization like TradeShift actually has the data; they're sitting on the data. So as Sheehan was saying they can do something with it globally in a in a very very meaningful way. So I just I just think it it is. A, a shining light. And, you know, we've seen other trade um, uh, financing uh, platforms online launch their own lines of capital as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, hopefully this year and next year we'll see more and more growth in this area.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. We often we often hear about, you know, sort of, I suppose, non-traditional players, whether they sit in the um,
3: supply chain
0: or whether they're um, providing post-terminals and all of that sort of stuff, actually sort of disintermediating the traditional banks in this space—that's often the context that we hear about this in—but actually, this is a great example for the sort of benefits of both coming together, right? Val, what was your reaction to this story? Keen to get your thoughts.
4: Yeah, I mean, I guess you know, I think um, you know, it makes me think about some of the you know the partnerships that we've we've you know had at Oak North and some of the investments that um, you know that that we've um, you know we've made investments in uh some of the right some of the the businesses that we've made investments in are some of the businesses that we've lent to. Um, you know, we obviously have lots of kind of partnerships at the back end, right? The you know with ClearBank and Comply Advantage, TrueLayer, and, and at the front end we've partnered with, you know, the likes of Monzo and Raisin. Um, and it's sort of trying to find those partnerships that make commercial sense in terms of what you're trying to achieve as a business, but also where you feel that you know, from a customer service and a customer experience standpoint, um, you know, it's not embedded finance, but how can it, how can you make the the, the experience feel uh, seamless and like they're not having to bounce from you to then back to another institution, then back to you. And that if they do have a challenge or, or a question or a problem that, um, you know, they know who to go to for it. And they're not sort of calling you up and saying, can you help? And then you're like, sorry, you have to go to Monzo for that, and then they speak to someone at Monzo and they say, oh, you actually have to speak to Oak North. You know, that that's not an experience you want. So I think, you know, trying to um, niggle out some of those those things um, early on um, can then help to ensure a good, um, a good long-term partnership.
0: Yeah, completely agree. And look to your point as well. I mean, a better experience and better outcomes for end users, right? Um, okay, well, look, I am going to take us just for a quick break. Uh, so we'll be back with you very shortly.
1: Fintech Insider community, we need your help. The 11FS Awards returns on Wednesday, 15th of November, and we will be celebrating the people and businesses from across the globe who are helping to move the industry forward. This is where you come in. Do not miss your chance to influence who takes home an 11FS Awards trophy, whether they're trying to make the world a better place for their customers, changing the game for businesses, or utilizing AI to improve their customer experience. We want you to tell us who is building the best stuff. Submit your nominations right now at 11fsawards.com. That's 11fsawards.com.
0: All right, welcome back. Now let's get back into the news. The next story comes from Fintech Finance, with the headline, Global Fintech Funding Drops 17% to $52.4 billion in the first half of 2023. So Global Fintech Funding fell to $52.4 billion in the first half of this year, according to KPMG's latest report. That's down 17% from $63.2 billion in the second half of 2022 investment activity in the US makes up a big chunk of the total global funding, with its $34.9 billion accounting for more than two thirds of the $52.4 billion seen globally. So David, maybe I'll uh, come to you first on this. What do you make about the story and, 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 and some of the numbers?
3: I mean, it's stinging, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I wonder whether a part of the story is is just due to the natural landing that the the wider economy is making all over the world from the glut of investments and growth that happened during COVID. Um, and you're you're seeing this absolutely everywhere. One thing, though, that I find kind of interesting about it more on the optimistic side is that it's not all bad news. So the things that are getting invested... I mean, we've been, we've been talking about supply chain today, for example. So within the report, it is things like supply chain and logistics, which are um, seeing the most record growth. Um, and also things like green fintech doing really well, more than, it's, more than it's ever done. So I wonder whether what we're looking at here is more of a rebalancing and a, and a, and a reshifting of where the investments have been made before, into more, shall we say, classic or standard fintech business models that as the investments have been made, it's become increasingly difficult to see where the exits are going to come from, right? Some of these markets are extremely competitive. Some of these markets are also very, very small. So if you look at countries um, in Southeast Asia, for example, or some countries in Europe that have seen a glut of investments into things like neobanks and BNPL lenders and whatnot, You hit a point, I think, very, very quickly once you spend your cash acquiring all these customers. And actually, in some cases, spending a hell of a lot of cash acquiring customers, hundreds of dollars you hear sometimes. You hit a wall. Who's going to buy you? Where is your profitability? So, you know, as bad as it is, in some ways, I think what we're staring at is a more positive future that is more profit-driven and that might be more focused on solving genuine unmet needs.
0: That's a really interesting point that you make. I mean, um, as the market cools and as funding levels off, you know, investors are clearly being a lot more intentional and maybe purposeful, right, in terms of what they're investing in. Um, Val, keen to bring you in. What are your thoughts?
4: Yeah, I mean I think first of all I'm surprised it's only seventeen <laughs> percent, to be honest. Um, you know, last year it fell by thirty three percent compared to the year before. Um, so you know, it's arguably twice as good this year as it was um compared to the previous year. The other thing is obviously it's all context, right? I mean, if you look at some of the other areas of tech, biotech funding's fallen by forty percent, food tech's fallen by thirty six percent. Um, you know, I get the overall investment numbers in those in those sectors are obviously much much lower comparatively than than what you might have in fintech but even tech overall is still down 37%. So 17% you know is, is isn't too bad and I think you know um kind of David's point it's it's about the industry sort of growing up and as we know part of growing up you you know, you have to go through puberty. Um, this is a sort of the sort of slightly uncomfortable period. Um, you know, there's a lot of unwanted change, um, you know, change that often comes along very quickly. You're not quite sure how to deal with it, and maybe you don't necessarily want to talk about it. Um, but it's change that kind of has to happen um, in order to kind of take that necessary step to adulthood. And, and what we'll hopefully have is at the end of this, you know, as David kind of put out, more more sort of mature fintechs, fintechs that, um, have managed to build really um, resilient business models. And I, I, you know, I think the number of fintechs that weren't profitable for a really long time and have in the last 18 months switched to profitability, even if it's just on a month by month or quarterly, you know, on a, an initial quarterly basis, um, you know, is, is a really positive thing. And you've seen that in the wider tech sector, right? Uber obviously, um, has, has just become profitable for the first time, you know, after, after many, many years and several years being a listed company. So I think you know, it, it sort of drives some of that maturity, um, which which is really important um for the future of the industry.
0: Yeah. It's interesting actually, because I think the headline the story reads as as quite a negative one, but actually there's a good amount, I think, of optimism, Val coming both from yourself and 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 DBG. Um, and actually the puberty analogy is is helpful, right? Like it's it's an uncomfortable time. And like you said, um sort of, I suppose, young and fun businesses are having, they're, they're going through this process, this uncomfortable process of having to become more, as you said, mature, resilient, and I suppose, sustainable. Um, and we have seen, look, we've seen the high profile sort of like down rounds and layoffs across the sector and all of that sort of stuff, right? So it is uncomfortable. Um, Shian, what was your uh, what was your sort of reaction to this story? And, and, and how do you think this, uh, this plays out over time as we move forward?
5: Yeah, I think uh, a few thoughts. I think the uh, expectations have changed in terms of the interest rate environment and the macro environment right so so i think there are um, apart from the uh, profitability situation or the 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 background around uh, fintech in general the environment has ha- has changed and it might be uh, for a period of time it is not going to be for a decade right so what that means is that um, the sources of funding have other uh, channels to get that return. And also, uh, you know, from a larger bank's perspective, when we look at investments, we look at returns. So, you know, you're discounting the future cash flows at a, at a higher rate, which means your expectations are higher. So, so that's one angle that could explain the drop. And also the fact that that, that drop may not be a long-term thing, but uh, um, you know, for a period of time. Uh, the, the second is I, I actually do think that uh, it is a positive thing from the perspective of uh, making sure that uh, fintechs take a step back and think about how to get to profitability, how to get to scale um, sooner. So, so I do think there is an element of growing up there that uh, you know, makes this uh, a, a real uh, serious contender when it looks at profitable businesses of the future. Um, and and finally, there is also for uh, you know large organizations with the with the valuation declines that have happened. There are opportunities out there as well to to partner with, invest, uh, acquire, whatever it might be, with 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 some of these fintech. So 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 the bottom line is, I think um, it's it's potentially a short term blip. Uh, I think there are uh, silver linings in that, uh, whether that is. Whether that be for the industry or whether that be for the larger organisations to partner with and invest in uh, some of these fintechs as well,
0: yeah, as ever. I mean, it does feel like there's real opportunity. Shehan, exactly as you say, um, David. I mean, I guess temporary blip or or sort of more more permanent shift. Keen to get your thoughts, but equally, I suppose it doesn't necessarily feel like we're going to return to those sort of halcyon days of. Endless VC funding and new unicorns announced, sort of what felt like almost every day or every week, right?
3: No, absolutely not, um, and probably for the better, I would say. Um, however, you know, it, it still serves to boot that bringing a financial services product to market is extremely difficult and complicated, right? No matter no matter how you how you split it, and getting a banking license is also very very difficult and. In order for these businesses to remain successful, there's going to be a long time where they are unprofitable. And we do still need venture capital to be taking risk um, and taking risk with underserved segments that are just more difficult to lend to and more difficult to serve. So at the one time, it's 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 very easy to say, oh, you know, we absolutely need to drive profitability and, you know, we need, we need, we need to have that path. But, but on the other hand, It would be worrying if the risk appetite is withdrawn so much that we don't get the innovation um, that we that we desperately need
0: no completely agree um val final word to you
4: yeah i mean it, it just sort of makes me think of this um this post i saw from one of the paypal founders on linkedin um early this week and they sort of said you know um, categories don't just pop out of thin air. You're always replacing something. We enjoyed music before Spotify. We found vacation rentals before Airbnb. We messaged coworkers before Slack. We hosted SaaS before AWS, and you know the list kind of went on. And I think there was so much of, you know, these solutions without a problem. Um, you know, there was there was so much silly money going around and silly valuations going around. I mean, you know, the down rounds in some ways are sort of like moot points, because, you know, if you're on, if you're listed, your your share price goes up and down and no one's like, you know, sure they mention, okay, share price is down by X percent um, and it's up by X percent, but it's sort of like, it's just the way of the market. Um, and that's that's going to happen in, in, in the private markets as well. Um, but I think what it hopefully means is that you're going to end up with, um, you know, not only, um, you know, new categories being created, but also, um, you know, businesses from existing categories, but doing things in a much better way and really genuinely innovating, you know, as, as David says. Um, whereas I think before you almost could become a bit lazy because you knew there was uh, so much um, easy money uh, flying around. And um, so hopefully we will actually see a huge amount of innovation um, and, and a different sort of um, generation of entrepreneurs kind of coming out of this um you know the best the best um entrepreneurs thrive in times of turmoil right and we saw so much innovation come yeah. out of the financial crisis so i'm sure we'll see the same uh, coming out of out of this kind of cost of living crisis too
0: i think that's it and i think that's the ultimate i suppose note of optimism but i think as well we've touched on quite a few sort of lessons that can be learned over the last 15 years since the um the financial crisis as well it can be um sort of carried forward um all right i'm going to move us on to our next story which comes from the evening standard with a headline snoop snapped up by vanquist so former virgin money boss dame jane and gadia's money-saving app snoop has been sold to a specialist bank four years after launching vanquist banking group said it had acquired the fintech platform for an undisclosed sum the takeover is expected to help Snoop grow by bringing it under the ownership of the banking group, which is 1.7 million customers and which focuses on consumers who have been declined credit from high street lenders. The Snoop app aims to save customers up to 1,500 pounds per year and helps business customers monitor consumer spending trends to better understand their customers. It uses open banking technology to connect to a customer's bank accounts and credit cards an AI to sift through the retrieved data to find money-saving opportunities on bad deals, poor value renewals, and wasteful subscriptions. So Shihan, maybe I'll uh, bring you in first on this one. What I suppose, uh, what was your thoughts on the uh, the story and I suppose the benefits to both sides for the partnership?
5: Yeah, I think it's, a, it's an interesting one. Um, it's in the same sort of direction where the banks and some of these innovations or fintechs are partnering instead of the banks building some of this capability themselves. Um, I do think it goes to the heart of, you know, um, data and using this data and insights, um, whether that is a transaction of finance selling, whether that is a transaction of spending habits, and the ability then to embed finance within those customer journeys. Um, so I do think there's likely to be, um, you know, a, more of a trend towards uh, banks partnering with investing, acquiring such, um, so, so, you know fintechs uh, or uh, entities that um, have the data and have the users and have the traffic that will provide that ability to then embed financial solutions.
0: Yeah, I really agree. Um, does this does this partnership sort of make sense to you, Val? Did it come as a bit of a surprise?
4: No, I mean, I think it makes sense. Um, you know, uh, I think Banquist is sort of known as one of those um, providers that's more of people who have um, difficulty in terms of, um, you know, they might find it a bit more challenging to get, uh, you know, a credit card from it or, or finance from another provider. They tend to have a bit more, um, you know, potentially difficult, uh, track, a credit track record or, um, things on their, on their credit history. Um, you know, so I think obviously in this, this environment, that's, That's going to be even more important than it's been um, historically, you know, interest rates, obviously where they are. We know that um, I think about a million people are going to see, um, you know, their mortgage uh, increase, uh, you know, and and a few million have already seen their mortgage increase. um, And that then obviously brings, you know, um, affordability challenges. Um, You know, one of the businesses that we've now done a couple of lends to is, is a company called Money Plus, which, um, you know, helps people sort of manage their finances, overcome debt and and get on the, the savings ladder. And you often hear about getting on the property ladder, but the idea of getting on the savings ladder, just teaching people to put a little bit of money away and um, find where they might be able to make those small savings and then start to build um, from there. But taking that first step can often feel very um, overwhelming. Um, and the fact is, with unfortunately, the cost of living crisis, many more people need help from businesses um, like Money Plus and um, may in the future need um to go to banquets or, or similar institutions because potentially they find it harder to go to some of those more um let's say blue chip providers uh in the market. Um so yeah so I think you know it everyone sort of it's good to know that there's institutions that are sort of filling the gap for those um individuals. Um and yeah I think I think it makes makes total sense. Obviously you see a lot of MA happening in, in times like this. Um you know, we we haven't done anything this year, but you know, last year we made an investment in uh, ASK Partners, which is a sort of um, a, a debt uh, a, a, a sort of specialist debt provider. And um, we acquired Fluidly back in December um, of uh, 2021. Um, we did put in a bid for uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Obviously, we, we lost out to Sheehan and his colleagues, but uh, at HSBC. Um, but you know, I think. Uh, you know, it's it's an it's a market where you're going to see a lot of that happening. Um, because there'll be a lot of businesses that, um, you know, that that may find they don't have the runway. Um, but also that they may find that they can achieve their ambitions much more quickly if they have an investment or um get acquired by by a larger company.
0: Yeah. And 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 David, I suppose taking those two points together, you know, Val mentioned that um people are actively now seeking out ways to, to save money and actually to get better control over their finances given the cost of living crisis and everything. How, how important do you think this is in terms of maybe giving um, Snoop an uh, uh, increased route to sort of scale through this partnership and the benefits for potential, for potential users?
3: I think it is really important because if you look at the open banking aggregation business model, wow, that's a mouthful. Um, but if you just think about businesses that are set up to aggregate finances from multiple sources, give you the insight into your budgeting and then and then do something with that, there's definitely been a real struggle to monetize that, right? So Snoop sell um, a, a premium subscription. A lot of the others do as well. But ultimately, that comes down to needing to sell a financial product in there somewhere in order to in order to make profit. And so with Vanquist's credit cards, that in some ways makes sense. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what they do with it. Um, you know do they keep it separate? Uh, do they integrate it? Do they spin it off as a as a new revenue earner rather than just trying to sell the own their, their own credit cards? So it'll be interesting to see what they do. but I think um, you know to Val's point about consolidation and m a activity, a partnership like this does just make sense. I think in some cases it's it's a little surprising that it's that it is a vanquish. I think it's a very very shrewd move, um, and amazing timing. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how many more of these deals are done um, in other countries where open banking um, aggregation exists that allows these business models to to thrive.
0: Yeah, Shehan, one of the things I'm I'm interested in here is I think Snoop is a great tool. If you're already that way inclined, if you're already someone that is quite, you know, plugged into their finances, that likes to understand where they're spending their money, that likes to actively seek out ways to, um, to to make savings and all of that sort of stuff. I just wonder with um, Vanquist's uh, sort of target demographic, which, you know, are people, as Val mentioned, that might struggle to get um, credit from sort of high street banks, etc. Do you think? I guess. What are some of the challenges, or do you think they're going to be successful in actually really getting customers engaged with this type of product?
5: I think, depending on the, you know, I don't want to speak to Wankwest's strategy in terms of their segment and 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 such like. But uh, if they do have the appetite and that is within their sweet spot in terms of the customers that. They are going after, uh, then certainly the the data and insights, and ultimately um, getting better visibility into the behavior of the customer um, will help, right? So, uh, for and it's very similar to um, you know the work that we are looking to do with the JV and with TradeShift. Uh, we want to work with a larger number of. Um, SMEs and smaller customers. And the only way you're going to do that with that aspiration and with that target is to find ways to mitigate the risk and to be able to give that credit. And that requires more visibility, more real-time data uh, to understand what are they doing, where are they buying, where are they spending, how often are they getting paid, uh, who is paying them, all of that. So, So I think uh you know as long as that target market matches, then the data or visibility and um you know all of that can can only help. Yeah,
0: completely. And look, Val, final word to you. How how do you think, you know, they can do this? They can sort of manage and roll out this partnership to get the best from it, I guess, for those those end users.
4: Yeah, I mean I think looking at it from the other perspective, because we've sort of, you know, talked about it from um, you know, they they can uh you know, they'll be able to with those customers who might find it more challenging to get get credit from a traditional high street bank potentially if they had access to these type this type of data and insight, they would be able to overcome some of the challenges that they have right A lot of the time it's um you know it, it's it's things that are you know I don't know maybe a, a bit more at the surface level but it's you know again helping them to sort of reduce the debt slightly it might be helping them to understand you know, how an interest rate is going to impact them. But I think sometimes someone just being able to see this is how, you know, this is how I'm spending. This is my outgoings versus my incoming. um, That kind of visibility can be very helpful. So I think using that to actually uh, help improve the financial literacy of those people, as well as giving them, you know, products that will help them to hopefully um, build up their credit score and and get them um, the ability to, you know, to get credit from other institutions helping them build out some of that knowledge as well, I think is, is really key. So, um, you know, I I hope that that's what they'll, they'll also be thinking of as part of their strategy with this.
0: Yeah. I think that's really nice. Cause you mentioned earlier that, um, managing your finances and getting on top of them can be completely overwhelming. So I actually think you're right. It's those initial sort of quick wins to help build their confidence and then iteratively how you sort of move them along that journey. So I think that's, um, that's exactly right. All right. Um, Now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick-fire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Uh, David, what have you got for us?
3: All right. First up, banks accused of closing accounts belonging to British Muslims from Sky News. British Muslims are having their bank accounts closed without adequate transparency and recourse, representatives have claimed. The Muslim Council of Britain said individuals and organizations in the community were being disproportionately affected by this issue, leaving the group with deep concerns. The body has written to senior politicians across political parties to call for a review into decision-making processes and the use of third parties in the banking sector. The Secretary General of the NCB said the arbitrary withdrawal of banking services by different UK banks has become par for the course over the past decade. To find out more about the current challenges facing British Muslims from a financial services perspective, we reached out to Harris Erfan, CEO of Cordoba Capital Markets.
6: There are two major challenges facing British Muslims uh, using banking services in this country. The first is a lack of financial products and services that accord with their religious beliefs. And that challenge is a function of lack of representation in the Islamic finance sector. There's a huge cultural gap, a lack of affinity between the British Islamic banks and the people who seek their services. So it's no surprise that there's a lack of product. Now, the second is a much more topical challenge. It's the unexplained closure of bank accounts and denial of services to British Muslims. And it's taken the furore around Nigel Farage's bank account with Coots to highlight uh, what British Muslims have been dealing with for many, many years. Every time we've raised it, it's been completely ignored. Now, I've been approached on a number of occasions by Muslim charities and Islamic fintech firms complaining that they've had a denial of services or a closure of their bank account. Uh, And I advise them whatever I've been doing, which is I've learned to navigate this minefield by never making mention of the words Islamic finance or Sharia compliance or halal investment, uh, which is pretty hard to do when you run an Islamic finance business. I also think it's pretty ironic that it took a right wing populist to do us a favor and shed some light on what I believe to be a strong case of structural discrimination. Uh, I think banks need more diversity focus as part of their onboarding training, Uh, They need to look at their sanction list providers who need to get educated. There have been examples of a major mosque in this country that had its accounts shut down and it won an apology and damages because it had been wrongly linked on a global database to terrorism. Uh, These are the sort of stupid decisions that cause untold amount of suffering in the community. Many Muslim-run and law-abiding charities and other organizations have had similar problems and we must must have legislation or regulation to ensure that this cannot happen again.
3: It feels, in some way, listening to that, that this is just the tip of an iceberg. Um, and to maybe just to recap for some of our um, non UK listeners, um, the controversy over the last few weeks has been around this notion of a politically exposed person, which banks in the UK um, are able to make decisions to um, bank with a customer or close a bank account based on how exposed they are politically, both domestically um, and abroad. And it is not something that all countries around the world um, face. For example, in the US, they don't they don't have such a policy. The real controversy has been around how the PEP law or regulation has been almost expanded or become expansive and pervasive across things that may or may not have anything to do with politics. And and I think, and I really think, what's going on here is. As Harris is alluding to, there is a wider, deeper problem with banking um, the, the unbanked and banking people who don't fit or conform to what a bank deems to be compliant. So I, I really think that we have a lot of work to do in this country around um, providing banking services and access to banking and credit um, into the future.
0: Yeah. And I think when you look beyond that sort of Nigel Farage circus, you know, if some good comes out of it, then it looks to be that some genuine wrongs um, are actually being sort of called out and exposed. Um, So we'll keep an eye on how this one plays out. Um, It's now time for our and finally section of the show, which as ever is a look at something a little bit more offbeat or lighthearted from the news this week. So this headline comes from the Daily Dot. Job applicant lists, quote, balloon animals on his resume. So boss brings balloons to the job interview. So many people add a few little white lies on their resume, but a dentist on TikTok shared that a job applicant listed, quote, balloon animals in the skill section of their resume, then was shocked when the interviewer wanted to see the balloon animals firsthand during their interview. So TikTok user, uh, Dr. Brady, at Dr. Brady Smith, a dentist with over 263,000 TikTok followers, has garnered more than 412,000 views with his video sharing the story. So Brady lays out a scenario in which an applicant for the dental assistant position at his office listed balloon animals in the special skills section of their resume. He then added, quote, then I bring balloons to the interview and you can't make balloon animals. Not only are you not getting the job, but I'm pressing charges, he jokes. To learn you're lying the whole time about that, like, you belong in jail, you savage animal, he adds. Uh, That was a direct quote. Um, I don't even really know where to uh, start with this, as is often the case with our finally, sorry, and I do think that producer Matt, whenever I'm on, just finds the weirdest ones that he possibly can, just to sabotage me. Um, Val, what
4: is this? (laughs) I mean... Look, I think, you know, you have that sort of that that bit at the end of your CV, which is sort of like other, you know, or like hobbies and in another interests. And if you have space, it's sort of where you put stuff like, I enjoy reading, I enjoy playing tennis, whatever. <laughs> I sort of feel like if you've got the space in your CV for that, then great, have at it. Um, I find I, I don't ever have the space. I'd rather use that space than to put some more um, information um, about me that's hopefully going to be relevant for the job. Um, and, you know, you can put other, you know, special skills that might be things, um, you know, if I was going to put one, I would probably say like, mentoring, right? Because I'm part of formal, both formal programs for mentoring. Um, I do a lot of informal mentoring. Um, I'm hoping to get a qualification later this year in mentoring. And I feel like that's something that would actually be useful for, for any organization and, and, and hopefully could be a transferable skill if I'm, if I'm managing people and so on. So I think, you know, for the sake of a CV, you know, you're trying to make yourself memorable or stand out, then you might get caught out, um, as was the case here. So you know, maybe this is probably more advice for some of your listeners who might be looking at you know um, trying to get into the fintech world and um, looking at um, you know making the move from university into or, or from um, you know education into into the workforce. And, and yeah, I just say you know it's it's better not to <laughs> better not to lie on your CV. I mean. I can get by speaking French. I lived there for, in France for several years. I'm half Danish, so I speak Danish, but I don't put on my CV that I speak those languages because I don't feel that I'm very confident if I was to use those in a business context. You know I certainly couldn't do this podcast, for example, in Danish because I have no idea how to say things like venture capital uh, in Danish, for example. Um, so you know I think as well there's a you know you have to kind of have, have some honesty even and if you're trying to sort of pad it out um, because you're you're earlier in your career. Then it's better to just put things like you enjoy reading and you enjoy playing tennis, as opposed to something that you think will uh, will make you stand out in the pile of CVs someone might have on their desk.
0: Yeah, no, that's a fair point, um, David. I mean, keen keen to get your uh, your reaction. Totally take all of Val's Val's points, but what if they what if they missed out on a great dental assistant because of this whole balloon animals piece, which may or may not be relevant.
3: I know it's such a shame, but also such a random thing to lie about. Like, why would you, and why would you lie about that? It's how is that relevant to dentistry? I don't know if you're going to lie, like make it relevant to the, <laughs> the job you're doing. I mean, it was a very interesting stat. Um, according to a survey by Standout CV, fifty-five percent of Americans have lied um, on their resume um, at least once. So, like, you know, this has got to be, this has got to be pervasive. But back to your point around what to put at the end, I, in some ways I can't, um, I can't escape it because I studied uh, archaeology at university. So almost every single time I get asked, what, I, how, how the hell is your qualification in any way relevant to the job you're applying for? And I, what? Or, or can you please explain that, that move? How did you move from digging a hole in a field somewhere to, to FinTech? I was,
0: was going to uh, say, so you're, you could add in your special skills on your CV or resume, like good at digging. Great, I'm so good at digging.
5: Great, great yeah. with a shovel, Siem.
0: What do you think? What do you? What was your reaction to this
5: one? Yeah, I think the 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 stat really surprised me, to be honest. Um, and my thoughts are, I think when you say line, I think uh, as David said, the relevance, and if you get caught out line, then the lack of trust and uh, the downside is is significant, right? So, in in my view, um, you know. Is, is it, it lies should 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 not be there now. Clearly, on a CV, there's a lot of subjectivity, right? So, you know, where you may want to um, express certain things, you may have certain views that uh, certain things were very successful, and it might have been uh, very successful is subjective, right? To one person, it might be one view, and to another person, another. And I think that's fine, but uh, this kind of um, Um, uh, lie where potentially it's also not relevant to the to the uh, job you're applying for uh, i think is a risky move and um, has um, uh, more negative uh, outcomes for candidates than positives
0: yeah i totally agree i bet in that person's head as well they felt like it was a pretty safe lie i guess precisely because it was irrelevant like there was never a world or a scenario that they foresaw where someone turned up with actual balloons and said, all right, then go for it. Let's see what you can do. Uh, But people are weird and TikTok is weird. So um, that's my my final word on it. Um, All right, that wraps up this week's new show. Um, Thank you so much to today's guests. Um, Let's do a little once around the virtual room. Where can people find out a little bit more about you guys? David, let's start with you. You can find me on
5: LinkedIn at DavidBG. Excellent. Shian, how about you? On LinkedIn as well, Shehan Silva.
0: Excellent. And Val?
4: Yeah, LinkedIn's good. Um, and if you want to find out more about Oak North, then oaknorth.com.
0: Excellent. And as for me, you can find me at rosgalleger07 on Twitter. Um, and thank you for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks very much and goodbye.